Hey everyone, welcome to the Sound Girls Podcast. I'm Rebecca Wilson and today we're talking to Kari Erickson, a Seattle-based front of house engineer who toured mixing Michelle Indega Cello for over four years. We cover her start in the New York City music scene at the famous Club Tonic when people like Kim Gordon, The Strokes, and Steve Albini were yet to become the icons they are. We also talk about touring life, her current job at the Seattle Art Museum, and much more. You can find over a hundred Sound Girls podcast episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So I kind of want to start off because you're a bit of an OG that was off the Sound Girl radar. <laughs> um, I had heard a I had heard a rumor that you and not only one but two other women mm-hmm. sort of ran the club tonic in new york city mm-hmm. so maybe you can we go did. uh into into sort of how you started sound even if it was before that and just tell me a little bit about how you got into it and how your path was sure um so i it was a little bit um kismet i guess i uh had moved to new york city when i was 20 actually living in flatbush in a um in a sublet and this was long enough ago that there was a house phone and so, yes. Yeah. So the phone rang on the wall and I picked it up. Um, and it was a man who ran a audio company and he was looking for the people that lived there and they weren't there. And he said, I, I just really need someone today. Uh, do you think, <laughs> do you think you could do it? And I was like, yeah, are you kidding me? No, <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. So I went and uh, and and uh, helped him out. At, at the time, I was a photographer's assistant. I was like, I just doing whatever I could to to make money. Um, and so he kind of took me under his wing. And then I decided I liked it. And um, I found the Institute of Audio Research, which was this little tiny school on uh, 14th and University in Manhattan. Um, super fun, all analog, and it was short. So it was nine months nine months, I think, uh, and cheap. And what year was this around? I think it was 2001, 2002, okay. maybe. Yeah. I think it closed shortly, shortly after. Same way after I worked at Tonic. I think I ruined <laughs> <laughs> You burned it I down. I burned girl. it down. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so same with starting working at Tonic. I actually weirdly went to um, a uh, book club that was in Subtonic, hosted by Vernon Reed uh, of In Living Color. <laughs> oh, my God. I went with um, one of the people I knew who lived in New York at that time was Gordon Raphael, who happened to be recording uh, Is This It with the Strokes in his basement studio. <laughs> oh, my God. Isn't it funny when all the, the dots connect when yeah. you've been in the business long enough? Yeah, it's really weird. So he, I actually got to watch that record being made. Um, yeah, so it was just randomly weird. And I met Marcus, who worked at Tonic and, um, you know, asked if I wanted to start taking shifts. I actually started at the door. And then uh, Michelle Casillas was there and Dana Walks. Um, those are the other women I worked with at Tonic. Um, and they were they were already kind of established engineers at that point. Yeah, I mean we were all young, but um, but sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean way. they were mixing, and 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 you when you arrived at Tonic, you had from this other job, gotten skills, and that's how you got the the Tonic gig. Yeah, and I just started shadowing. I mean, you know, I think 
the fact that we were all women, you know, everyone was really supportive and there was just, it was a great learning environment. Yeah, that's how it was for me too. I never really felt much pressure except what I put on myself because it's really loud <laughs> and expensive <laughs> stuff, right? right? So you, so how long did you work at Tonic and what was that like? Um, God, it was amazing. I, I loved it. I worked there from, you know, must've been 2001 to, um, to almost 2006, I think. I left in December of 2005 or October or something like that. Um, it was incredible. I mean, it was, there's no place like it, you know, there's no place you can see Kim Gordon and Mark Rebo and John Zorn and, you know, playing to a hundred people on a Tuesday night. <laughs> That's incredible. Mm -hmm. And so you were you doing, you were doing monitors and front of house from just a little club desk there. Oh yeah. But it sounded great. We were, uh, Meyer, you know, we, we didn't have any money, but Meyer sponsored our, our rig. So we had great front of house speakers and it sounded good in there. So then after Tonic, where, where did you go and how did, how did you work? So during my time at Tonic, that's when I started um, doing front of house touring for bands and working in other venues sometimes, North Six and um, uh, the Mercury and, you know, doing front of house in other places. I, I, Tonic certainly didn't pay the bills, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, at all. So, um, and then I actually left. I um, have two children. So my first daughter was born in um, actually December of 2005. So I did leave in October. I was about seven months pregnant, still working. <laughs> that, really? That ladder was really hard at Tonic. <laughs> <laughs> is she musical? Is she <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, she is. She is. I don't doubt it. Yeah. I mean, in the womb, like music right? and club, club sound. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so I moved to Seattle then, which is where my family is. Uh, and my mom is a, was a midwife, so she delivered my babies. Could you talk a little more about touring and, uh, and how that was for you and what capacities you sort of worked in? Yeah. Let's see. I, um, I really started the first, like, big... This is not big at the time, but the first big-ish tour that I did was, was that was longer, and it was um, was an East Coast tour with Animal Collective. Um, oh yeah, who I met, of course, working at Tonic, along with everyone else I know <laughs> in the music world, and uh, that was a. I feel like that was a really great tour to sort of cut my teeth on because they're such weirdos <laughs> and <laughs> low pressure no nobody would I mean yeah you know they were tuning their guitars to an mp3 player that had the tuning on it they didn't even name the notes you know it was like everyone would listen they would all listen and, and tune to, to like whatever whatever that was I don't know if they want me to tell you that I'm sure they do um <laughs> I'm it's sure it's fine. rock and roll cool. Yeah, exactly. rock and roll. I'm sure they might still have that MP3 player. <laughs> so were you guys on a bus yeah. or it was a no, band No, no, it or? was van. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was van tours. How was that? Yeah. It was great. It was super fun, you know? I was young and it was just, uh, it was a great adventure. And like I said, musically, you know, no one would know if, if it, it wasn't right. <laughs> Yeah. From an audience perspective. And it actually, it was killer. I really, um, you know, 
learn to sort of fill venues in a really like rich way with them because the music is so rich uh, and like all encompassing. Um, so it was fun. Yeah. Beautiful. And mm-hmm. then what were some other, other kind of road tours that you did? And if you could talk about that, if there are. Sure, there are. Um, I guess one of my favorite East Coast tours, um, it was pretty short. I think it was a couple weeks too, but it was with a Welsh band called McCluskey. Um, I don't know if you know who they are. I don't, but that, it's you know. worth checking out. They're, they're, they were really good. I think they're, they've broken up. But um, so... It was just these three crazy dudes from Wales, and their music is is a uh, um, post punk. It's, it's good. I would I would look it up. Um, and we met in um, Chicago at Steve Albini's studio. So just oh, you God. know, my mind's kind of like my young rock and roll mind is kind of being blown like <laughs> left and right. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are all icons. It's sort of like, I mean, it's just history in the making, only you don't know it because you're in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then, I, you know, I just got really lucky. I feel like um, most of the things that have happened in my life have just come from word of mouth and recommendations. And, you know, so I got to do some some shows with Yola Tango in Mexico. I did I toured with Michelle and Degiacello for four and a half years, five years. Oh, that's that's um, an unbelievable gig. I bet. Yeah. How was that? It was amazing. Were the players that played with her unbelievable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, always. She always had a, well, for a while, she had a different drummer uh, until, until they settled in, but every one of them was mind-blowing. Yeah, it's really fun. And was there any kind of, um, I mean, what was her setup? That had to be pretty, was it was it large or no? No, no. No, it was bare bones? Yeah, very minimal. I mean, they're all such amazing players. My favorite part about the way they toured and the way they they set up on stage is that they actually, you know, they didn't use a traditional drummer in the back, you know, singer in the front setup. The drummer would be on stage left and the keyboard player would be on stage right and they'd face each other and then Michelle and Chris would be in the center in like a sort of a semicircle and they they played that way which made it just a, such a pleasure because they never really needed monitors they used oh, them for reinforcement but they could always play together you know they just were good enough that they knew how to play any stage and still hear each other which i really appreciate and which i try to teach you know doing front of house now or working with younger bands you know it's one of the one of the things that I try to impart is that, you know, never use the wedges as a crutch or in-ears. Oh, my God. Now I'm going to be like, get off of my lawn with your, with your in-ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why do you, what do you see the artists make mistakes with in-ears? Well, I just think that they, you know, they become isolated. Their experience becomes an experience they're having almost alone even though they're on stage with their their band members, right? I totally get it for for drummers. I think it's wonderful because they really don't need to be blowing their ears out at all times. Um, but otherwise, I feel, you know, in that same vein of, of Michelle and band setting up so they could hear each other, like that's a super fundamental thing to be able to do is to be able to leave your practice space and not be like, 
it doesn't sound like I'm in a 10 by 10 foot room with carpet on the walls. Like, no, it doesn't. It's never going to. You have to figure out, like, you know, how to please each other and still hear. And also, you know, you're going to be relying on uh, monitor engineers who may not care or terrible rigs or, you know, like, you can make your tours better by being better, <laughs> better players, yeah. you know? So, okay, we were um, talking about Michelle's tour in in-ears. I'd love to hear a little bit about um, other kind of, like, wisdom gems that you could give people mm. for touring and kind of what you learned there as far as maybe stage volume or venues or anything. Mm -hmm. um, this is honestly what I would say, and I, and I really believe that this is just wisdom for your entire life. Uh, functioning well, but I would say that the most important thing for me has always been what I call bedside manner. If you are kind, speak with clarity, what would you say, like confrontational, but you're still able to say what you need, you will have a great time. Like I, I really have found that I've run into, you know, you run into mean people, <laughs> Or people who are just disgruntled. And if you just don't respond with anything but kindness, everyone ends up having a good time. I've made people laugh who I just never imagined, I, you know, would, like we would have had, a, our bands would have had a terrible night. You run into grumpy engineers, you run into grouchy production managers. Like if you just don't let them ruffle your feathers, then, you know, it changes everyone's night yeah that's truly brilliant I, I i can't agree with you more um and then as far as working with artists and communicating with them it sounds like you did some tours that had a monitor engineer and sometimes you are mixing monitors from front of house is that right yep mm -hmm. yeah so how do you can you give any gems of wisdom on how you sort of work with communicating with artists that maybe don't have the vocabulary that to tell you what they need in the monitors or how how have you ever had that happen Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it starts again with that conversation about positioning on stage, which is what, you know, really like if you you can't hear yourself, there may be an issue that isn't actually the monitor, right? Yeah, uh, it's how yeah. far away you are from the bass amp. It's the angle of the guitar amp, you know? Are you directly next to the drummer's ride symbol? Like there are things that we can do before we start the conversation about monitors and then also you know trying to of course ring them out uh in any venue <laughs> sure. before the band gets on stage is very helpful too because oftentimes they just are terrible it's the last you know it's an afterthought sort of which it shouldn't be but i've run into some pretty embarrassing monitors <laughs> true story yeah. me too true story oh my god <laughs> So, so then as far as, uh, okay, so you quit touring, was it, did you have your second, that was, but touring was before you had your first daughter? Yeah, well, I, I toured prior and then had two kids. Um, the other great thing about Michelle, she also has kids and family and would only do tours that were under three weeks. So it allowed me to make plans and do those tours as a mom, um, they were long, but they weren't months long. So I was able to, to make it work. Yeah, three weeks on tour can feel really long, I, at least for me. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's kind of brilliant that you uh, 
that that you worked for her and and that worked lifestyle wise for you. Mm-hmm. So then, when you kind of quit touring, what was that moment like? Did you feel like that was it, or was it just sort of wax and wane, like a lot of things and opportunities, or how how did it work for you to start your next chapter? Mm. Well. <laughs> That can either be a comedy or a tragedy. Um, Let's tell both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I stopped touring when I got divorced <laughs> because not living in a two-parent household or, yeah, not yeah, not living in a two-parent household, it was impossible to schedule touring at all. It was just not, not going to be um, feasible to leave for those those periods of time without someone in the house you know it was enough shuffle for the kids to have to move between households and then to leave for long periods of time was just not doable so um so I stopped touring but I have you know I I stopped touring and not entirely I've taken some little short runs um or some sub runs for friends who had to miss a few dates or whatever. <laughs> I still, it's my first love. Like I think live front of house, um, when you're working with a band, when you, when you can be the, the collaborator and the, the fifth beetle, I guess, or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite form of, of, uh, doing sound. And out of most of the people that you toured with, as far as a really rich front of house experience, that was, you know, where you felt like your mixing chops really were built. Mm -hmm. What would you say? When did that happen? And and why do you think it happened? You know, I think it's funny. I would say that um, actually uh, working at Tonic was what built my mixing chops um, because it was such a huge variety of music. I say, always say it's where I learned to listen to improv and really understand it. <laughs> because when I started working there, I was like, what? This is just a bunch of noise. And then, you know, a year and a half later, it was like, oh, wow. I like learning how to mix something like that's kind of rough uh, in the beginning when you're just like, what? They're just like making random sounds. <laughs> It's very loud. <laughs> it's very loud. That's what I read. It's very loud, and I can't make anything yeah. clear. Exactly. But then, you know, uh, there, there I was two years later being like, oh, yeah, I got this. I can make this all clear. I understand every piece of this now. You know, it didn't just sound like a big cacophony. Yeah. Okay. And so then I guess fast forward, what was your next move after touring professionally? Because I I saw that you did some radio stuff that was live mixing. Mm -hmm. You've done uh, TV, you've done Mm -hmm. the museum. So maybe just if you could talk about what the next chapter was. Mm -hmm. So that's going to tie back in with the divorce. Um, You know, once we were living in separate households, uh, I had them four days a week and then they were with their dad on the weekends still are actually which is why I'm sitting here talking to you (laughs) by myself um so what being an audio engineer did for me in a way uh as a freelancer was allow me to spend that four days with my kids and then just over schedule myself um (laughs) Thursday Friday Saturday (laughs) It's kind of it's kind of terrible and also beautiful in a way that, you know, we didn't have a traditional two-parent household or I didn't have to drop them at daycare at 8 in the morning and pick them up at 6 p.m. I kind of got to 
to create a life for them in which they they had their mom and and then you know I I had my work which is totally separate. Uh, so therein comes all the things um, because I was freelancing and hustling. I was just taking whatever came. So that that was I uh Can KX was the name of the radio station. You know, they did they did four hour sessions of um local and touring jazz. Uh so I picked that up. I did uh like yeah, location audio um for Visit Seattle, which is like a tourism company. You know, once you have basic skills, they're applicable in so many places. So I uh, also had a friend that ran a teleprompting company and she gave me about an hour and a half of training and then sent me to teleprompt for Joe Biden. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) But you know, when was that recently or no? No, it was, he was still, um, he was still vice at the time. So we have a selfie together. Do you? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So (laughs) silly. I know. I've often found that the only way to really learn something is to get thrown in the fire. Yeah, you just have to go do it. (laughs) Speaking of which, can you think of a time that maybe stuff didn't go so well and what you maybe learned from it or anything like that? I'm sure. Probably blocked it out. Ah, I'm trying to remember, you know, one of those moments that you wake up thinking about 10 years later. I'm going to use that as my next question for the next guest. Right. Like, what's that one? That one thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't think of anything specific. I mean, I, I, I can remember. Uh, I mean, I mean, I still have like occasional anxiety dreams of not being able to find the frequency that's feeding back. You know, those dreams that you're just like, I can't or I, I'm trying to plug in an XLR and I, I, I can't find the end. And, it, and it's there's like the show has to start right now. And, you know, someone's dog runs across the stage and there's like, oh my you know, my mom's calling and I'm holding the end of the, <laughs> of the XLR. <laughs> Make this you know happen. what mine is? I have a reoccurring dream. It's so funny you would say this. Mine is that there's just massive feedback, crowded room, and I can't find the console. Oh, like they've nice. Moved you can't the console. get to it. Oh, yes. No. <laughs> I love it. Where is it? Uh, where's the console? Oh, my God. Yeah, it still happens. Pretty bizarre. It is. I mean, our, we're, we're so we're such an intermediary between people's experience of an event of any kind and usually for entertainment that when it goes south it's it's kind of a big responsibility yeah it's huge it's huge and yeah and the reality is if you've done it right you know only the other engineers in the room will know you're there the other people won't won't have noticed (laughs) yeah well said yeah you can always tell the engineers because they'll turn around and like give you a thumbs up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you, I know you're, you're an audio engineer. If you're... Yeah. And they're sitting right by the front of house. Yeah, there. totally. <laughs> they know it'll sound best. Right. Exactly. So, so tell me about the Seattle gig, this, the Seattle Museum of Art or Seattle Art Museum. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get to work with the installation artists? Is it, mo- you're a systems tech there now currently. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a funny, um, job description it's um it was kind of tailored for me it's not really systems tech as you would think in the traditional sense um 
what I do, so the integration aspect of that is with um, install. So when we do um, film or any type of audio at all in the galleries, that's my that's my job. Um, so it's cool. I get to to put in you know surround systems and. It's been a really cool learning experience. And I also do like their Summer at Sam series. I do front of house also. So it's kind of a weird unicorny hybrid kind of a job, um, which I feel really, you know, fortunate to have. I had been just um, sort of on call teching for them in 2019 and got hired full time uh, Three months before the pandemic hit. Uh, Did you really? Yeah. So you had health insurance and an income, which almost no audio engineer had for two years. So they did. I feel so fortunate. They, they did end up furloughing us to halftime, but they did shared work with the state, which means we got our unemployment also. So it was a miracle. I don't, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any kind of parting words for any up-and-coming engineers advice-wise about the business or anything at all? I'd say don't let the hard times scare you away. It's actually, I find in this industry that people are genuinely very supportive. And if you need a hand or you need to know something, audio engineers love to talk about what they know. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, use your resources, you know. Um, there are people all around you who do a myriad of things. I think, you know, my career path is, is proof of that, that, you know, you're not stuck where you are. If you, if you are doing monitors or interning in a studio or, you know, whatever, there, there are people around you who can open up other doorways and pathways for you if, if you decide you want to go in a different direction. So, okay, last thing. Um, can you recommend a great record? Ooh. Old or new. Yep. Soft or loud. Anything you want. I can. So the record I will recommend to you is a woman that not a lot of people have heard of, but should have. And this record was made in the 1970s. Uh, her name is Annette Peacock, and the album is called I'm the One. Brilliant. Okay, thank you for that gift. I, uh, I'll have a listen. Good. Your experience is really unique. Mm -hmm. So it's an honor to have you on. And thank you for sharing your time with us. Awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope we get to work together someday. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Our mission is to create a community for women in audio and music production, providing the tools, knowledge, and support to further their careers. Check out soundgirls.org for more information. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. One of the interviews is with Stephanie Brown, a sound editor and dialogue and ADR supervisor, known for her work on The Incredible Hulk, 8 Mile, A Wrinkle in Time, and many others. Working on The Matrix was probably my favorite because at the time we didn't know what that movie was going to be, but we knew something was going to happen. And to see the phenomenon that movie became was amazing. And then to be involved in the sequels, it's still the highlight of my career is just being involved in that. 
Be sure and catch the full interview with Stephanie Brown, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. Be sure to check out what our friends in the podcasting community have in store for you at audiopodcast.org. Hey there, audio community. The Sound Girls podcast would like to thank our sponsors, QSC, for supporting our podcast.